I love going up to Canada. I've gone up to Ocean Quest、um, a couple times. I was supposed to be up there this year, but you know, COVID canceled everything. So I like to go up and see Rick and Debbie and Johnny O, and I join on Joe Heiner's trips to go visit them a lot. And it's just world class diving. It's episode 42 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Sandra Klopp. Welcome to Dive in the Podcast, your favorite podcast about all types of diving, scuba tech, free diving, and more. We cover it all. Every week on Monday, we post new episodes filled with diving news, interesting dive topics, ocean advocacy, and much more. To learn more about our show, find your favorite guest, or just read the host's bio, be sure to check out the website, diveinpod.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin. I'm April. I'm Amit. I'm Nick, and we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Guess what we launched the other day? We didn't tell anybody about, though. What did we launch? We launched a Patreon page. I think that、oh. is news because I didn't even know it until. You、right、didn't、now. even know about、so. it.、Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what is a Patreon page then? Yeah, so Patreon is a way for、uh, people to support the creators that they like, and we've joined the ranks of creators on Patreon.、Um, there's no paywall for listening to this podcast, there's nothing that you will miss out on by not being on the Patreon. But if you want to support us in our goals, And they're all listed on our Patreon for you to check out. And I would encourage you to go over to patreon.com slash dive in pod and check them out. It's like buying us a coffee, right? Basically. Yeah, it's like yeah. buying us a coffee. Or yeah, adding yeah. to our pension. Or adding to our pension. Yeah. It's all the pension. It's all about the pension. Justin's get, kids have got to go to university. They've, they've got to、so. go to university somehow. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure this Patreon will cover their university bills. And,、oh, I'm certain. Highly unlikely, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have monthly expenses on this podcast that we pay for now. If people would like to help us cover those expenses in producing a quality weekly podcast, we definitely would appreciate it. If not, listen and have a great time. We're just going to keep doing this anyway. We're keep doing it anyway. You can't stop Til, us. Till we go broke.、Yeah. <laughs> Our significant others can't stop us. You can't stop us. <laughs> Nobody can stop us. It's on. It's on. <laughs> We've got guests lined up for months at this point, and you guys don't even know what you have in store for yourselves yet. Actually, we do.、Uh, we're, I think we're booked almost through to the end of March with guests right now. Very nice. All that being said, don't even support the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, April. <laughs> We've received several submissions for that bonus entry into the Peregrine contest. There's been a、uh, couple of people recording voice messages,、uh, you know, submitting reasons why they like the show or episodes they like the show. Uh, but we had a pretty hilarious one come through that we're going to have to link in the show notes. Yeah, it's a video that、uh, Michael Wegmans,、uh, I don't know where he's based,、uh, pretty funny video of him thinking about、um, getting, winning a dive computer and made a reference to the episode where we talked about the guy that was trying to flee the FBI underwater.、Uh, so go check that out. <laughs> and we have、uh, for everybody else's voice notes that you have submitted, we're going to play those、uh, once we've drawn this round. We'll start playing. Your voice notes during the second round of the, of the contest. Yeah, awesome. I can't wait to play those and share them. And yeah, keep sending them in. Yeah, keep sending them in. And always remember if you're going to do illicit things, do it inside and out. <laughs> Pro tip. <laughs> Tonight we'll talk to Sandra Klopp. Sandra is a talented technical diving instructor and owner of the scuba training facility Urban Manta. A deep, closed circuit rebreather, side mount, and cave diver, she is also a world traveler. When she's not honing her technical skills or hunting for megalodon teeth, Sandra spends her time developing new projects. Welcome to the podcast, Sandra. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, we're happy to have you and excited about your interview today. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm back at Cave Adventures where I was quarantined for most of this year. Awesome, awesome. Well, before we get into your interview, we've got a little bit to chat about. Last week on the show, we had、uh, Dion Jones, who's a great interview and,、uh, you know, kind of shows we had a side mount instructor last week with Dion. We've got another fantastic side mount instructor this week with Sandra. I love that we get like a local, national, and international mix of instructors and personalities on the podcast. Yeah, it was good to have、uh, Dion on the show. And、uh, for those who have known Dion, Uh, in his previous iteration in、uh, Halifax, I think everybody's happy to have him back、uh, 
here on the East Coast now. So yeah, it was fun to actually have him on the show. Mm-hmm. And our contest uh, going like uh, gangbusters, lots of people trying to win that Shearwater Peregrine. That's uh, that's pretty awesome to see that happening. <laughs> I'm going to have to turn my notifications off right now because yeah. my Instagram's blown up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my phone is just crazy. I'm turning notifications off for Instagram for a little while. <laughs> you know what? You can't complain about that, though. I guess it's a show. No, no. there's no... Nope. Happy to see yeah, it. It's something else. <laughs> yeah, everybody yeah. wants free dive computer. I don't know. I guess. <laughs> yeah, slap the name Shearwater yeah. on the drive computer, and all of a sudden it goes crazy. Go surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, head over to the news. Uh, Sandra, I got a real quick question for you. Have you ever done any free diving? I have not. I was planning to do a, a class in Indonesia, but then mm. COVID canceled everything. Used to do it off the um, dive boat in Thailand when I was dive mastering. Yeah. And um, the guests would have lunch. We would all go free diving. But this was before there was a proper class structure. And <laughs> right. The availability right. of a lot of instructors out there. Definitely ties into the uh, news we had this week. Uh, the Saudi Arabia has its first free diving school, the Jeddah Free Diving School, or JFS, which is also the initials of the founders and instructors. Uh, Jahari, Farsi, and Shalon. Shalon and Farsi are both record-holding divers and looking to bring free diving to the kingdom. It's exciting to see the sport expanding into parts of the world that otherwise may not have much exposure to it. I mean, it wasn't long ago that uh, here, us here in Nova Scotia didn't have any free diving training available. And so that's a new thing here and new thing in other places too. Yeah, I remember last, it was it last year or the year before, I think uh, Kurt Chambers of Hawaii went, uh, I believe was some somewhere in the Middle East, he went for a comp and one of their national freedivers actually died in a training accident like the week before the event and then they they kind of banned anything deeper than 18 meters or something oh really um, so i mean I, I don't know if that's held up but yeah it's good mm-hmm. it's good to see like freediving expand to to new parts of the world yeah that's it for the news today it's time to dive in with sandra klopp so sandra before the interview today, you were out uh, diving. Uh, you said uh, an email to us that uh, you were going to go for a quick cave dive. How'd that go? It was good. We were just staging up the cave to go back to um, the end of the gold line at Jackson Blue. There was, um, it's pretty easy to get through with a sidewinder. You just have to kind of gun one of your side mount tanks and the mm-hmm. cans for the sidewinder sit right along your, your side. Um, and so you can wiggle through a lot of tight stuff that I can't get through on my back mount rebreather. Yeah. I'm going to go back there and, and shoot a little bit hmm. with, um, with one of my buddies. So we just uh, went to make sure we have a couple bottles placed. And so uh, tomorrow we're going to do a little photo shoot in the morning. And then I'm going to take my friend's son for a Discover, like a fun little shallow Discover dive. Um, he's like 13. Um, and then we're, we want to go back and poke around um, the the untouched area which it's it's touched there's survey lines but yeah but relatively untouched yeah awesome i mean you you definitely got us uh, a little bit jealous here because the best that we have is water that's uh, <laughs> i want to say like uh, a balmy six degrees celsius in poor viz so when you're talking about like <laughs> staging <laughs> bottles and uh, heading back into a cave for photo shoots i'm just like <laughs> Wow, why am I why am I diving here when I could go down there? That sounds <laughs> Yeah. I'm from New York, so I get it. It gets very cold. And um I teach ice diving and that's even okay. colder. <laughs> so yeah. you said earlier you said that you were uh, from New York. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I grew up in New Jersey and then um I went to college expecting to get kind of a suit and tie job. Mm-hmm. Um and I found it really wasn't for me and I had Traveled around the, the globe after college, procrastinating, going to law school, um, right. and ended up dive mastering. Found out I loved that. So when I came home, and I did get a finance job, but I was also working on my instructor license in New York, um, mostly because I had seen that the instructors who paid better attention to their students in Thailand were those trained in cold water with limited visibility. So hmm. I thought, well, if I go back home to New York, it's um, cold water and crappy vis. So It'll force me to pay better attention to my students and keep everybody very, very close and have a high level of team awareness. So mm-hmm. I learned how to teach uh, at first in New York, but a lot of what I do with teaching now comes from a handful of cave instructors. Sandra, did you uh, have much contact with the ocean in your childhood or where did that passion come from? I did. I grew up on sailboats. My father 
loved sailing and he would be out in the bay every, every weekend that he could. So um, a lot of times we were out there with him. And I think that's why I can do long decompression hangs and um, I don't really get bored. I just go into a meditative state because mm. when I was, you know, five, six years old out on a sailboat every day and we didn't have iPads. So <laughs> we, um, I, I would get bored. And I think I just learned how to be out on the ocean all day. So as an adult, I don't have any problems. Um, I can be out on boats for days at a time and it doesn't seem to bother me. And, um, you know, just being underwater doing long deco hangs don't seem to bother me either. So I think I learned that as a child being out on the water all day. That'll definitely help you out when you decide to take up uh, or when COVID allows you to take up free diving. Yeah, I was, I was actually just thinking there's just talking to different people over the last year, um, definitely like from free divers to cave divers or technical divers, there seems to be a parallel with people finding sort of like a, like a zone or like a mental space um, uh, in either discipline. Hmm. Um, where, where did you learn to dive and what was your first dive like? I learned on spring break in Cancun in college. So um, we would go out to the nightclubs every night and then hmm. during the day... I wanted to get up and do something every day. So one of the things I tried one day was diving. And looking back, it wasn't even um, a by-the-books discover. Um, mm -hmm. I literally just stepped foot on the boat, and they said, okay, don't touch your inflator. We're going to do that. Um, remember to equalize and breathe through this regulator. And they just kind of <laughs> threw me off the boat, and there was a camera person down there at the, the bottom of the, the anchor line just snapping pictures. So... I somewhere I have a picture of me with a snorkel standing in the water column, like just, <laughs> you know, no clue what's going on, yeah. but I loved it. And I, I thought it was so much fun. So when I studied abroad, I, I tried it again in Australia. And then I studied abroad in South Africa. And that was the only semester I didn't have to work in college. It was um, like 13 rand of the dollar. And it wouldn't have been worth working that semester because the American dollars I would have made per hour, um, it, it wasn't that much. So it was the one semester in college that I didn't work. So on the weekends, a lot of international students um, joined the underwater club and we got our license for open water and advanced. You mentioning in, the, in that kind of uh, an answer there, a lot of traveling. So are there any, uh, any favorite places of yours that stand out from all that travel? I love Asia. Asia has always been a big favorite of mine. Um, it's just the, the people are so kind. I feel very safe over there. It's matriarchal society. So as a single female traveling, um, I never felt threatened. Asia is a big favorite of mine. Um, but cave diving in Mexico is, is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. so many cenotes to explore. There's a lot of untouched territory there. So I love going to Mexico pre-COVID. And then in America, we have, you know, we have cave country in Florida. Mm -hmm. So I've been spending a lot of time here lately. Wow, that's very cool. And so one of the things I picked up, uh, you had mentioned earlier on, was that you were going to law school, but you opted out for a career in diving. That couldn't have been, or at least I'm presuming that wasn't an easy decision. What led to it? So I was taking the, the LSATs in college, and um, I I'm, was really good taking them untimed. But timed, I wasn't hitting uh, the scores that I wanted. Untimed, I was getting scores that it would get me into anywhere. So as I was taking it, I realized um, that there was five sections and one was experimental and the test added up to 101 questions. And you could just look at the number of questions, figure out which was the fake section and then use that extra half hour to benefit you. So I figured if you're going into law school, why not find a sneaky way to, <laughs> to get to, to, to weasel your way out of the standardized test to figure out how to do really, really well on it. So that's what I needed was the extra half hour. I figured out how to do it. So I thought, well, hey, I'll, I'll just wait. Um, two years to clear that score off so it won't count when I take the test again. So in that two years, um, I started off going to, to Thailand to, to do a teaching English program. Um, and then I ended up on PP Island. And to celebrate, I, I just ended up staying. I did my dive mm. master class. <laughs> so I, I never ended up going to law school. Okay. But I did end up using one of my degrees to uh, go into finance because one of my majors was economics. So I had, as I was traveling around the world, I, I realized that the people were doing well. Um, lawyers were working all the hours and the people on Wall Street were making all the money. So <laughs> I thought, okay, well, yeah. I, so I, I got my dive master certification and then I thought, okay, well, 
you know, maybe I should go join the real world for a little while. This is what I'm supposed to be doing in life. So I went back and bought some business suits and I, I got a job working downtown in finance. Um, but I just wasn't 100% happy. You know, I was sitting at a desk. I was working 50, 60 hours a week. I was getting fat. And um, it's really hard to get motivated to go to the gym if you've been sedentary all day. And that's one thing I treasure is being active and trying to work out every day. Yeah, I definitely feel you there with the desk job being a, a killer. I just came off of, uh, of a desk job and I'm moving into more of a, I guess, like a, an active role and, and relishing the thought of not being stuck behind a desk. So yeah, I can see that being the case. I don't think I have the guts that you have to just say like, that's it. I'm just going to go diving full time here. But um, I think as a secondary job, it's pretty cool. So yeah, that's, it sounds though really that it's one of those things where you just felt passionate that this was the right thing to do and it was the right thing for you. And you were actually brave enough to just, just go do it. Like, you know, just steal the Nike phrase, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I don't think there's a ton of people out there doing that, but uh, yeah, very cool, very cool decision. One of one of the things you mentioned when I first reached out to you is um, you you dive for megalodon teeth, and you sent you sent me some great photos today um, of those. Uh, for people who are not familiar with what megalodon teeth are, can you maybe describe that for for our listeners? So megalodon sharks roamed this planet about two to twenty million years ago. And they lived to be up to 70 feet long. They were massive. So for some reason, these teeth, they seem to have pockets of them that you can find on these fossil ledges off of North Carolina. Um, that's the most well-known state for them. And you can find them on land, too. There's places where you can go mine them. But in terms of offshore diving, um, I've never found them underwater anywhere else. I've heard you can find them off of Venice Beach in Florida, uh, but it doesn't seem to be the volume that we can get off of North Carolina. So that maybe that's obviously one of the better places. So, quick question there: uh, the Meg with uh, Jason Statham is. Have you seen that? Do you think there's any truth to what's going on in there? <laughs> I, I, I travel a lot before COVID. I would see all my movies on the airplanes, and that was. I, I definitely clicked on that and watched that okay. one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most impressive thing is the, the scale of size, a human being to the megalodon shark. Yes. So I don't know how factual that movie really is other than that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. the sheer size of a, of a human next to one of these massive beasts, um, we, we're pretty sure they're extinct now. I know there's, there's theories that they're not, but... But the, the tooth size is like hand size, right? They're gigantic. It's crazy. Yeah. And, those, and those, I guess, sell well. Yeah, five, six, seven inches. Um, it's very rare to find an intact seven incher. Okay. So that is one of the projects that I'm very interested in is getting to the deeper offshore ledges and hunting for them. So we pulled up broken seven inches, but um, we're looking to find intact seven inches. So I think I found the right boat and the right exploration partner now. And um, just hoping to, to be able to, the nights that we camp out at sea, if we can drop off into 150, 170 feet, the ledges down there, we think there might be less water movement. Okay. And it's over, over time, you know, these teeth, as they get slowly, they get washed out of the limestone bed mm -hmm. and they get washed around with the sand. And then when hurricanes come, they sort of replenish the supply and move everything cool. around a bit. Um, and we found uh, broken seven inches. And even restored with a, with a tip that's been epoxied on, it looks, it looks perfect mm -hmm. again. Um, mm -hmm. Even that'll be worth like $1,500, $2,000. Oh, wow. Um, for, wow. For, for, for a reconstructed seven-inch tooth. And it's very rare to find an intact one. But um, I'm really interested in going out there w with my new partner at Weston Collections and just being able to drop off and, and just check out some of the, the unexplored, untouched beds at that depth. So, so how, how, deep, how deep are they? And do, do they just lay on the bottom or do you have to dig around? Or how do you find them? Yeah, both. So we go out to, there's the inshore and the offshore ledge. So the inshore ledge is around you know, 96 feet. Offshore ledge can be around 110 feet in that range. Okay. And um, 
there's a couple of fantastic charter boats that go out, um, WB Diving and Jet Lagged. They love taking out recreational clients and they show them a great time. It's, they're both very safe boats. And the crew and captains want to make sure that everybody who's coming out is, um, is coming up with some, some teeth. So, or people that, that spend a lot of time out there will we'll try and make sure that everybody can find at least a couple teeth to find them. Some of the sites you can just swim along and just pick them up off the top. Wow. So the guys at WB have a, a site they call it Toppers. Um, the other way to find it is by fanning, either with a ping pong paddle or your hand. And you just kind of fan the sand away and, and try and dig through the fossils. I, I run my reel out, and because I am silting it out, I like to do a kind of John Shatterton um, way of placing strobes around. So I like to place a strobe on the end of my reel, and I am creating a silt-out environment, which is everything I do in the Meg Ledge is completely against everything I teach <laughs> and everything we do in cave diving. Um, right. <laughs> wow, that sounds very cool. I think. Uh, Sounds like I'm going to have to go down there because the 15 to two, two grand for a teeth isn't going to cut it. My daughter's like super obsessed with sharks and wants to be a marine <laughs> biologist. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll just buy her one of these things. But it sounds like it's going to be better off if I just hop on one of these charters and see if I can find one myself. Yeah, and it's, it's very addictive. And the thing is, these charters are $300 a day plus tip and then plus your costs of refilling your scuba equipment, tank rentals or rebreather fills. So you're looking at a learning curve. Mm-hmm. And when you jump on one of the, the, the recreational charter boats, WB Diving or Jet Light, um, you know, we do try and make sure that everybody like, comes up with a couple teeth and, and has a great time. But at $300 a day, you're looking at a, a pretty massive learning mm-hmm. curve. So to get into the industry, you know, if it's going to take hundreds of dives to really develop an eye for the, the bottom is different at different sites. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to, to learn how to be a hunter. How do you read the bottom? How do you find where the pockets of teeth are? How do you find, they call it a honey hole. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, if you can find the honey hole, you can, you mm. can find a whole lot of teeth. But um, as a beginner, it's, it's challenging. It's very similar to a hunter learning how to hunt deer in the woods. You know, how do you know where the animals are? Well, down, down at the bottom of the ocean, it all looks like sand and, and rubble. It's a, it's a fossil bed. And different sites have different ways of, of approaching them and different things to look for in the terrain. Sounds like I'm coming with you if I ever have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an awesome story. Yeah. Reminds me of some of the, uh, the bottle and shipwreck hunters we have up here. Pick something up off the bottom that's, you know, an encrusted weird little thing. And then, you know, let, next thing you know, there's a pendant under there after you know all the processing so you got to get that eye and you got to learn how to do that and it's uh yeah so uh it's a good skill to have i guess we don't really find any cool shark teeth around here but we find some uh cool bottles sometimes but uh sandra have you done any diving in canada before i love going up to canada i've gone up to ocean quest um a couple times I was supposed to be up there this year, but, you know, COVID canceled everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like to go up and see Rick and Debbie and Johnny O, and I join on Jill Heiner's trips to go visit them a lot. Very cool. And it's just world-class diving up there. I mean, the World War II wrecks at Bell Island and the Bell Island mine. Um, and it is, the water is, is cold, but I've learned because of my trips there how I have... I have zero cold tolerance, but I can handle it because I have the right <laughs> equipment. Yeah. So I, I know I have weasel undergarments. I have weasel skins. I have heated vests. I, I have more layers that I can add and I become kind of like a marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way. It sounds like how we dive every day here. So. Yeah, I was yeah, going to yeah. say, I think that's how we dive all the time we are. Yep. Uh, yeah. And if you have the right equipment, it's actually not so bad. So no, it's very tolerable. Well, Sandra, if you ever want to go to Belle Island again, my mom and her whole family are actually from Belle Island. So I can, uh, I'll take you for a tour there sometime. Oh, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. I'll be there when COVID ends. We were supposed to be in Newfoundland circumnavigation. Oh, wow. Um, And then home base is is always, you know, Ocean Quest is is based in St. John's and Belle Mm -hmm. Island's right there. So, yeah, I would totally uh, love to. And I think we'll reschedule it for 2021. 
I uh, didn't realize the number of people that were diving Bell Island every year, but I swear mm-hmm. every third guest uh, that we've had on this podcast mm-hmm. this past year is uh, is talked about canceling a Bell Island trip or a you know an yeah. Ocean Quest trip. So yeah, just from yeah, that, it's I mean, awesome. It sounds well, sad, but yeah, I was going to say it sounds like you got to get cave certified before you go because it would be terrible to get out there and not be able to do the mine if you're if you're there, right? So yeah. Maybe we'll have a dive in the podcast guest Bell Island trip. Oh, one there we go. This is all over. <laughs> oh, that would be great. <laughs> My awesome. Aunt Roz will make Sunday dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Take a quick break and we'll be back with more from Sandra Klopp. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Torpedo Rays is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. And these challenging times, it's always great to shop local. Don't go to a huge, big box help support your local dive shop buy something you've had your eye on excellent time to make a good deal buy a gift certificate to use later whatever the case may be torpedo rays and torpedorays.com will be there for you once again their number is 902-481-0444 or torpedorays.com Uh, speaking of diving in extreme environments, uh, you've dived the the famed Andre Doria wreck. You've been to 321 feet, 97 meters on CCR Trimix, and nearly as deep in cave systems, uh, which are pretty impressive feats. Uh, what draws you to do those kind of dives? I learned to wreck dive in the Northeast, and I learned to tech dive in the Northeast. So when I showed up for uh, in- instructor training, um, it was the only technical dive shop in Manhattan, and he put me in double tanks, and uh, he taught me how to teach open water in double tanks, which is not something I do now. I'm at the same <laughs> gear configuration as them when I, when I teach them when they're beginning. But um, I guess it was just a, a process of growth. I, I started out doing these limited visibility shipwrecks inshore, and then as the years went on, I, I started doing the deeper ones. And then I realized, hey, I've got these double tanks. What, why would I not do one long dive and get on Trimix and then just start going deeper? And then once you start paying for that helium, it's like, well, maybe I'll just get a rebreather. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got the rebreather. Um, and then when I started to dive the Andrea Doria, it was just simply because I, I was ready. It hadn't it hadn't been necessarily the, the one and only goal, but it just turned out that over time I ended up having the, the right equipment to do it. So I, I started going out and I was supposed to crew this year, but um, got canceled. And I was supposed to be a fun diver on John Chatterton's trip, which is always uh, awesome. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Like just, I mean, I don't think there's any diver that hasn't heard of that wreck. So like the ability to to say that you're going to do it multiple times and crew for it and all the rest of it, that's just incredible. We just want to keep people safe. And we have certain things that we do in limited visibility that the people don't do other places. So one of them is everybody places a strobe in the team. And if you do get separated, um, if your strobe is down, you're down. That's what that means to us. Um, and it also is, is nice to be able to see the anchor line. So we always want to run a reel. And what I learned from John Jatterton is bring two reels because the day your reel does jam and everything, um, you know, on, on the Meg ledge, we, the way we treat our stuff, we're, <laughs> we, we do end up cutting it a lot or, and, and leaving the line or, or rolling the line back up on the rail and fixing it later. But when you're, when you're out on the Doria, you want to have at that depth and limited visibility, two reels on you. And then um, the John Chatterton philosophy is, is he places a lot of strobes. And when you're in water that is that dark and, and disorientating, um, it is nice. It's a really nice technique to be able to to do that. Yeah, it sounds like it's almost like building a um, uh, a runway, right? Like, you know, for night landings when airplanes are coming in, but you've got this uh, strobe-built runway landing system for you to get back to your anchor line and get her there safe. That's, that's a pretty neat idea. It is. So I like to do both because... Uh, for, for me, when you get down there and, and the water is um, in the low 40s and it's very, it's very dark water, um, even with a rich helium mix, 
it's, it can be a little bit narcotic down there. You know, it's something about the, the cold water, the black water. Um, and then if you are out on the sand looking for China, since the ship is on its side and kind of opened up, it's just a mix of a bunch of different shells and, and bits. And, and it's very hard to tell directionality out there. So it's just super important to run a reel and bring strobes. And you, you don't want to pop a bag. It's not pompano. We don't, if you do drift deco out there, if you do have to pop a bag, that's when you, you really want to tie it off to the wreck because the currents can pick up and they can get ripping. And we're 100 miles offshore and you'd be a needle in a haystack if it was the, the wrong combination of ripping currents and, and fog and other people doing deco hangs if we can't come untied to get somebody and, and you just drift for an hour out of view. Um, I also have a Nautilus radio that I bring with me just in case. It's it's interesting because um, I hadn't thought of drifting with an SMB on the surface, but then yeah, the idea of fog, um, <laughs> yeah, that that's a, adds a whole other dimension that you normally wouldn't get somewhere like the tropics. No. We had that happen to somebody, and we heard him calling, um, and the the crew went out to get him. But see, it's scary because they're on the little Zodiac and they lost sight of the old salty of the mothership. And, um, and they, they were able to, to bring him in, but um, it, it was a lot of drag with all his equipment. And then he didn't want to drop his bottles to the ocean floor. And, you know, they, they did get him back. But I, I think we had to explain to him the, the danger that if, if, if we didn't hear him calling, you know, and he had popped the bag, but I guess he didn't think to tie it off to the shipwreck. And then he said, when he popped the bag, he said, all of a sudden I felt calm, like I was in Pompano. And you could just see the jaws drop and we were just like the eyes pop open. It was like, oh my God. But like, <laughs> if you're, <laughs> you're drifting a hundred miles out to sea and, um, and you drift out of sight, you're a needle in a haystack. Yeah. It certainly adds a different, uh, I guess a different perspective to that type of diving. And I know some, some wreck divers out here that do exactly what you uh, are talking about is they carry these big, I think they're from years gone past, but uh, big, huge reels that uh, have biodegradable rope on it. And it's for that reason. So they basically just say like, no, if I can't find the anchor line, that's it. I'm tying off on the wreck here, blow the bag and I'll ascend on that. And it's, you know, at least I know I'm going to come up in the vicinity of the boat. So seems like it's a, an extreme way of doing things, but maybe there's obviously not maybe, but obviously there's a, a sound reason behind why someone would want to do that in the type of waters that we're diving in here. So I guess to take it on a little bit of a different note, uh, but like our last guest, uh, Sandra, local side mount uh, and tech instructor, Dion Jones, you tend to focus on trim and buoyancy right from a student's first open water course, and you do make it a requirement for issuing a cert card. So what about that teaching philosophy is important to you? I think it teaches a diver um, the most control, which opens up their mental capacity so they can then focus outwardly instead of inwardly. So when you can teach somebody buoyancy, trim, and team awareness from the start, from dive one, by the time they have 20-something dives, um, they, they look ready to start, you know, minimum standards to start cavern training and, and any kind of tech training, double tank side mount is 25 dives by TDI standards. Um, and that doesn't sound like a very high number. Um, so experience-wise, I, I think it's not a lot of dives. But if they've done 25 dives correctly and they're working very hard for each of those dives to learn the correct muscle movements and, and have the head up, have the team awareness and the buoyancy, then they develop this level of, of comfort. And, and so as they come back and practice while I teach, they become the ones in the water who are helping out the newer ones because they always have their heads up and they see everything. So they, they can learn that way, but it makes it a lot more challenging for their, their first 10 dives or so, they work extremely hard. They're very tired at the end of the day. You know, I'm ready for beer o'clock and they're ready for bed. <laughs> they, I, I wear them out. Um, they, they work very hard to, to learn to do it that way. But um, usually in the pool session, it's, it's a challenge and I can't get everybody, um, you know, they, they try. They're, they're trying to be horizontal. They're trying to get buoyancy, but they're trying to run everything. And then by the time they're on the last day of open water and we're logging their fifth and sixth dives, the vast majority of them do seem to, to pick it up and they can actually 
like hover, interim, shoulders, hips, knees, skydiver position, um, with awareness on the team, with the head up, and it becomes like riding a bike. So by the end of it, they're, they're basically able to, to ride a bike. Whereas if they don't learn and, and they're planted on their knees to learn everything, that's when people come to me with like 100-something dives. And then I can't, I can't pass them for an intro to tech class over a weekend because I can't get them off their knees or to you know, stop swimming with their hands and, and to be still enough to even watch me do a, do, demonstrate a valve drill. If they can't even hover and watch me, then, then no valve drills. I have a quick question. Do you find that um, you get better like retention in a diver with, with that approach versus sort of like what somebody might call like a traditional approach to teaching scuba? Do I do they have better in terms of ret- like people that 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 will keep diving after a course that they might take with you versus something that's because you you were talking about how like tired they are at the end of the day. Do you think that kind of puts them off, or do they come away from the course going like, "Wow, I really appreciated that." Well, I always give everybody whatever they can handle. So whatever anybody's level is, like I I'll just kind of go until the the day ends or they or they run out of steam. Um, but do they retain it? They're, they're building muscle memory, right? So um, it just also depends how long they take off. If, if they don't die for like a year and then they come back, um, they ha- it seems to be they have to take a little bit of time to get their skills back, which I think is true for anything. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I noticed on your website, you address the high cost of scuba training, particularly with regards to the time and money an instructor has to invest in to reach a certain level. Uh, is it fair to say that budget courses and low pay for instructors is an industry-wide problem that affects the quality courses out there? It seems to be that when there's a very low class price, mm-hmm. so for example, over at Cave Ventures here, Panama City is not so far away, and people offer $600 open water classes, like all in. I, that's like pool, open water. And, and I can't compete with that because that's, that's if, if they're taking very large class sizes and they're putting people on their knees and teaching the minimum standards, what they're doing is they're not teaching buoyancy, mm-hmm. which is a required standard, mm-hmm. but um, it just gets overlooked a lot, I guess. And that's how I was taught to teach. But um, I think what happened when I learned from all my different cave instructors how to, how to cave dive and re-breather dive, um, I saw the value in small class size and, and charging a professional rate. So I'll only take usually just one, two, or three people a day um, because that's to give everybody um, the amount of skills that I want to build per day. That's pretty much the, the total number of people that I can teach this to without overloading the class. Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of instructors out there can be easily convinced keep using that word traditional, but maybe the, the older school instructors, I guess, at this point, uh, to limit their course sizes on continuing education. But it's that foundational thing that I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of instructors have a hard time grasping or, or seeing the dollars and cents of. I think so. And also, I don't do it for, for the money. So I've, I've worked since I was 12. I, I love to work every day of my life that I can. So I'll always have different projects and, and things that I'm working on. And so there's never been a day where I feel like I need to teach a dive class um, in order to pay the bills. So even now when, when COVID has put me out of work, um, you know, I always have like two or three jobs that I, that I do. And then when everything shut down for, you know, four months and then now again for, for like a month, um, I've still never felt pressure to have to increase my my class size or charge less because that's people's lives you know that you're I'm trying to teach people how to be how to be safe and not hurt themselves and you can't really put a price on that um I mean I guess I do because I charge people for training but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know no I think it's I think it's a really important point though and we've heard it from a number of very uh, uh high level instructors like yourself who've been on the show who you know who point out very specifically that well, really, it's not basket weaving that we're teaching people here. Like you're trying to get them out into environments that are very hostile. uh, And there is no real point where you'll get a break or you'll have like a gimme on a dive that's say a tech dive or, you know, a cave dive or something. So it really 
speaks to the idea that you have to train people to the level that they need to be. And you can't compromise on that because it is somebody's not going to come home as a result of it. And I don't think any instructor that we've interviewed on the, on the show would ever want that as part of their, you know, yeah, I, I really skimped out on that one guy because I was tired. And, you know, now we have this bad thing that's happened. So it's, it's a pretty cool philosophy. So building on that, Sandra, I wanted to ask um, why you chose to teach under the agencies you do and if, if, any, if there were any influences from these sorts of things on your choice of agencies that you teach under. Sure. And I think there are a lot of fantastic agencies out there. Um, I think there might be a couple that, that overlook standards like buoyancy as being required in training classes, um, but that seems to be slowly changing industry-wide. And um, right now, I've been working with SCI TDI. Um, when I started up, to have a storefront in Manhattan is, is very expensive. You know, it's, so I just kind of looked at it like, okay, well, I, I want to start up as, a, as an instructor out on my own under, without a brick-and-mortar store. And when I start making that extra, you know, six grand a month to throw down on a shop, which is, you know, 70-something thousand dollars a year, then... Uh, then I'll, I'll put up brick and mortar. But the internet sort of killed retail. So unless you are an internet retailer, it's hard to compete with that. So that changed the, the industry. And as somebody who, I'm such a diver myself, so half the diving I, I do is, is, is for me getting out and doing um, exploration and cave exploration, shipwrecks, megalodon teeth. And I, I do love to teach, but having... Uh, a home-based storefront. And now with COVID, I'm, I'm very glad that I didn't because I'd be paying commercial rent on a store that it's not really operable in the, in the city right now. So um, TDI uh, allows me to work as an independent instructor. So it's, it works out pretty well. It helps me to be able to take really uh, low class numbers and not feel the pressure to, to make that commercial rent. Yeah, that's that sounds like it's a pretty good reason, I guess, to go that way. Like, And I did want to say a couple more things about TDI, um, because I, I think I really only like mentioned one point, but TDI has been great for many reasons, including their materials. They put a lot of effort into their e-learnings, and they're all very well-written materials for, for classes, for students to read. Um, that and they're super easy to get on the phone and to talk to. So um, if there are any oddball questions or any problems, they're really easy to work with. And they're always trying to, to come out with new materials as well and stay on top of everything. Yeah, you know, and I can attest to that in their e-learning components. I, I quite enjoyed it. And I wasn't sure what I was going to get when I signed up for that course. But uh, the entire time, it, it actually... And they're very clear about where their where their sources are are being derived from, and it kind of led me to uh, some other reference material that I've sort of delved into on my own. And so I, I'd second that from you know from my experience, not as a, an instructor, just as a student. But you know, as a student, it's a great uh, great agency to get some information from. On the TDI note, there, I, I recently finished my advanced nitrox and deco courses this year. So I'm curious from an instructor at your level, like if, you know, for a person like me that's in that position, where, where do you go next with that uh, if you wanted to really push your, your diving and expand your technical dive knowledge? I started off when I did DECO, um, when I felt ready, I did normoxic, hypoxic, trimix. Um, and then I think just because of the sheer cost of, of helium, I went to the rebreather pretty much soon after that. Um, and I know a lot of people are going on to rebreathers like, sooner than than I did. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions was like, you know, so the cost of it being so prohibitive that I've actually been toying with that idea of like, you know, do you move to a rebreather? But really part of me is saying like, regardless of if you move to a rebreather, you'd still want the knowledge base of the, you know, of the trimix training to, to get you to that point. So is that, would you say that's right or wrong or? I don't think there is a right or wrong now. I, I used to think that the, the route that I had gone, the old school open circuit route, I, I thought that was the best route at the time. But now that I've been learning how to teach rebreathers, I'm starting to see a, a different side of it. 
And that side is, is really the physical and mental control, I think. If, if somebody can be in control of their dive and their machine, which is their buoyancy, their dive planning, their maturity level, you know, the, it's all about being safe on a rebreather. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty cool. A big part of that is just is just really getting control of the, the buoyancy and trim because if your um, brain is, is very, very focused on, on buoyancy and you're super inwardly focused, then it's really hard to, to outwardly focus on a machine that you're flying and your environment and your teammate. So I, mm-hmm. I think the core skill of buoyancy and trim, that is true across all levels, whether you're open circuit or rebreather. Um, if you have that solid, solid foundation, you know, so if you pick the right rebreather instructor, if you're not sure, uh, the right rebreather instructor will, will tell you if they feel like you're, you're safe enough to get a C card or not. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you, you say that about, well, not interesting, actually. It's, uh, I'm happy to hear that you're saying that about the buoyancy components as well. It seems to be a, a theme that we're running on today, but uh, I'd uh, I'd had plans ruined to go see Brian Kaycuck in uh, in Abaco to do some cave training with him there and get certified. And I remember in that discussion with him, I you know obviously as a you know a guy looking to go down and not ruin your reputation on day one with a guy like Brian, I said like, so what do you figure I should work on before I get there? And he just sent back the one just buoyancy. He's like, you know, <laughs> just sort out your buoyancy before you come here. Otherwise, he's like, I don't want to teach you how to dive when you get here. I'd like to teach you how to how to deal with caves and caverns and what have you. So, yeah, very cool. You, um, you've collected a number of rebreathers over the years, and you're also a KISS rebreather ambassador. Um, what drew you to rebreather diving, and what did you like about it? Well, so that's interesting, because I, when I did my normoxic hypoxic, um, I finished the class, and at the same time, the guy that had had the tech shop in Manhattan, who's, who's no longer around, he moved to France, um, he got his license pulled and could not issue me the open circuit normoxic hypoxic cards. He had sold a rebreather class, and then when he sold the shop and he didn't honor the, the class, the guy took him, my friend had taken him to, to court, and INTD pulled his license so I had all these emails and texts um, saying that I had completed the class and just be patient on my C card. And meanwhile, I, I didn't realize he was going through these court proceedings until, until my, I went diving with my friend and he, and he told me. And I was like, well. So because I, had, I, just, I, I would have had to, to repeat that entire class, and those are very expensive classes. And I had already done all the work, including all the, the checkout dives. So... Um, by that point, I had started up my scuba business, and I was a Hollis dealer at the time, and my local Hollis uh, representative was talking to me about the prism, too. Um, you know, and it, and it does fly like butter. It is a really nice work of breathing, and it was a great rebreather to learn on. And so I got set up with uh, prism, too, and I did my training with Jill Heinrich, and I progressed back up through normoxic and hypoxic trimix on the prism, too, in the caves. So, and then I came to visit Ed Sorensen and he had developed the Sidewinder and he kept offering for me to try it. And so I was up here one weekend and I was like, okay, all right, let's, let's go do a crossover. Let's just try it. And he was like, don't you want one? Don't you want to get one? So I, <laughs> it's like putting me in a, in a shoe. So I can't say no, I have trouble. Yeah. So I was like, yes. So he set me up with one and I found it was um, just fantastic for traveling for loading it up on airplanes and stuff, but also for going into tight spaces. And then through Ed, I ended up meeting um, Mike Young. Jennifer Idol was out here shooting him, shooting Ed, and um, he made the introduction. Uh, and then Mike since invited me on, I did my first cave exploration with Mike, actually. He, he invited me out to Cosmo. Um, and the two of them are just constantly in, inventing new machines and and, and new equipment. And it's just really cool to be around and just to be able to, every time I come visit, they seem to be working on something new. And uh, Sandra, where can people find you to book a dive or a course with you? Probably online. I'm everywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I float around. I, I have a home base. Um, but now my, my home base is no longer Manhattan because of COVID. I still have a place there, but my new home base has become Raleigh. And I've spent so much time at, at Cave Adventurers 
um, with the quarantine, but also working on learning how to teach cave diving and rebreathers. Um, and because I, I bought a pickup truck because with COVID, I'm, you know, I needed to buy a truck in order to go find a new city to create a new home base. So that makes me very mobile. So during the winter, I've, I've always uh, met students. Um, we pick somewhere warm to go if they want to train in the wintertime, um, you know, whether it's Alabama or Mexico. And the lakes in Raleigh are open year-round. Cave Adventures is open year-round. So I, I can train all year-round, um, you know, everything from, from ice diving in Alexandria Bay in February uh, to I, I meet students kind of um, whatever type of diving it is we're doing determines if we need to go to um, cave country somewhere or, or somewhere warm. And where can people find you on social media? Urban Manta. So I have Urban Manta on Instagram and YouTube. And I, I have uh, different playlists on the YouTube, which will, it'll show Northeast Shipwrecks and Megalodon Diving. And then my, my student video folders, which will show examples of what we work on in training classes. Pretty cool. I got to check out that YouTube channel. Um, what what keeps you diving, Sandra? I love it. It's just it's outdoors and it's it's very active. I've always liked to to go out and be in nature somehow, whether it's snowboarding or jogging. Um, it, it's just there never seems to be a bad day diving, and unless there unless it is a bad day diving, but <laughs> for the most part, um, the. The people seem to be pretty positive and an outdoorsy people that just want to get off the couch and, and go out and do something. Um, and I love looking at critters, you know. So I, I'm a photographer and um, I'll never be bored diving. There's, there always seems to be something to, to see, whether you're hunting for something or you're doing photography or you're exploring. No, that's definitely, uh, yeah, that passion. And uh, lots of people we've spoken to on this podcast to share that and always a good day diving for sure. That's really great. Uh, we'll stay with us, Sandra. We have a couple things to chat about here and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up for tonight. But first, we've got our gearing up segment for tonight. Spoke a while back about cold water regulators and um, it's getting into winter and cold water diving is, is, is here, um, especially here in the Maritimes where we're diving and the water is six degrees uh, Celsius and it's going to head its way down to minus two degrees. And, and what, why do our regulators freeze? Regulators freeze up uh, because of moist air. It's just really simple. It's something called the adiabatic effect. As pressure drops in the first stage and the second stage, it causes free freezing. Ice crystals form. They've pile up on the seat of your first stage, the high pressure seat of your first stage regulator, and then they don't close and then you have a free flow. So the temperature drops more in the first stage. So this is generally a first stage problem because it goes down, you know, from 3000 or 3500 or whatever pressure your tanks are down to all the way to about 150 PSI. It's a huge drop. So that's why these, especially these cold water regulators, their first stages are giant blocks of brass. You pick up that uh, that new Apex cold water regulator, and the thing weighs like 15 pounds. It seems like uh, it's because it's it's basically sitting there trying to keep the inside of that regulator as warm as the water is, and not freeze up and become a chunk of ice. And in fact, even that reg has little uh, radiator fins on it, like uh, like on your heater or something like that, or a radiator in your car to to exchange that temperature more easily. We spoke about environmental seals earlier as well. And I'm just assuming that if you want a cold water regulator, you're buying a regulator that's environmentally sealed. So we, we won't dive too much into that. Um, the second stages tend to have the most features that they put on, on regulator boxes or on the, on the bullet points on the websites uh, talking about regulators. Some have anti-icing things. Some have heat retention fins like the Sherwood Blizzard. They actually use your exhaled breath to warm the inside of the regulator, the second stage regulator up to keep ice from forming there. The uh, there's a really neat video of the of the Mare's Navy two regulator with a giant block of ice around it from the work of breathing testing they did for Navy certification for U.S. Navy certification. That's really really neat. And all these things are just to fight physics. So really, when it comes down to it, if you have a well built regulator, you should be able to have your pick from winter cold water regulators, unless maybe you're in the most extreme conditions doing extremely heavy amounts of work. So what can you do? 
Well, you can keep your regulators warm and dry before leaving the house. Don't stick them in the back of your truck. This includes your tank. Don't stick them in the trunk. You should literally have them in the cab and keep them warm. And they should be set up. Uh, Some people go so far as to set them up at home, take them to the site, and literally strap them on, walk into the water. Don't breathe from your second stage until you're in the water and your face is in the water and that regulator is fully submerged because you don't want any moist, non-salt water to be in that second stage. The water is warmer than the air as well, so you don't want to set yourself up by having those tanks and the regs be colder than they have to be getting into the water. Also, keep your workload work low in the, in, the, um, in the water. Doing this with slow, um, you know, consistent breathing and not being out of breath underwater doesn't give that regulator a time to warm up between breaths. So take those tips, make sure you have a good regulator. But if you don't follow those tips, uh, if you don't keep your regs dry, keep them warm, uh, don't pre-breathe them. If you don't do that stuff, you will get free flows. You will get freeze ups and don't blame that second stage. Blame what the first <laughs> stage is doing. That's all I've got. That was good, Justin. That's really good. Good and informative. I know it. I know it. Uh, it edges on pro tip territory, which no, is your line. No, that's okay. <laughs> I liked it. It's very. My mm. buddy had a free flow and rake today. So. No, oh, brutal. There you go. I'll pass it along to him. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a cold day today. It was what it was minus uh, minus seven, minus eight out, and uh, six in the water. I mean, that's yeah. that's definitely cold water diving. Wow, that's cold. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it's any consolation, I got out of the lake today because I I just couldn't resist uh, getting back in for a quick second dip when I uh, had a few <laughs> spare minutes, and it was cold enough that my suit was actually freezing while it was on me. I got out of the water; it was actually iced up by the time <laughs> I was taking it off. And I had people looking at me like who are just on their Sunday or, well, I guess it's Wednesday, uh, walk like, what is this clown doing? Right. Walking out of the lake <laughs> and freezing and turning into an icicle I, on shore. So Yeah, I finally set up uh, the the portable ice diving tent uh, because I went free diving today. So I was I was in a wetsuit, but the ice diving tent is a, is a dream to change in. Yeah. Oh, man. Ooh, you're you're, you're a brave cool. guy. You're a wow. brave guy. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I heard about pull, you guys, pull. but I didn't realize you were free diving in a wetsuit right now. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a little insane, that guy with the free diving thing. <laughs> wow. I got to tell you, I, you, I went. I went on my birthday uh, January this year, um, and it was minus twenty two out, and the water was zero. <laughs> but I was in the water for about thirty five minutes. Yeah. The uh, the free diving club has a kind of splinter group of uh, water divers here too, or cold water swimmers as well mm-hmm. here too. So they go out for. Very short, but very cold uh, swims uh, without all year suits, round. Yeah. Without suits, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Get that brown fat up. Brown fat <laughs> Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Mitt, what have you got for us this week on your side mount segment? Yeah, so uh, in between the last one and this one, I think probably the I've fielded the most questions surrounding uh, regulator selection for side mount. And so... Uh, I just wanted to throw out a couple of really quick tips uh, if people are considering switching over to side mount and or they're looking to buy new regulators with potentially the interest of starting or continuing their diving in back mount, but eventually moving towards side mount. And so one of the things that I would say that you should consider overall is your whatever regulator you're set that you start with, try to look for a DIN setup. Uh, and the other most, I won't say most, but the other important pieces that should be on that regulator setup on the first stage should be a rotating turret of some kind uh, and a direct exit uh, to rot your low pressure inflators. So it, it's very simple. There are a number of different ones out there. Uh, you know, uh, Apex has them, Scuba Pro has them, uh, Halcyon carries some great gear, uh, Atomics uh, has some uh, awesome scuba regulator sets. So you know, there, there are many options out there, but the key is to consider what it is that you're going to use it for and why you're going to use that as well. Consider the environment that you're going to be diving in. Uh, environmentally sealed regulators are obviously something that's going to help you out if you're in cold water and or areas where there's a high amount of clay and or sediment that's going to be stirred up while you're diving. So just some of those things to think about as you go through and uh, consider there is something that I'd put out there as well. Uh, not every turret is created the same. There are turrets that have a full 360 degree rotation capacity, 
uh, and some that some that have just about that, but not quite 100 and uh, or sorry, the 360 degree uh, rotation. So if you have the ability to pick one up that has full rotation, you'll find it easier to route and stow your hoses with uh, the full 360. So yeah, just really quick, nice and dirty. That's what you should look for uh, as a get go when you're when you're starting to think about regulators for side mount. Awesome. Thanks for doing that. Definitely important to plan ahead so you don't buy twice. Yeah, it's it's certainly not a, a cheap game with regulators, and I think, mm-hmm. yeah, when you when you think you're going to need two of them, you may as well just buy one that you can transition with well, and uh, you know, give it a little bit of thought because there there are different options that you may find just from personal preferences that one you like better than the other, and yeah, that direct exit port and the rotation on the turret, something else. Awesome. Well, I think that does it for today's episode. I really want to thank you, Sandra. For joining us today it's been really great and really informative and the stories you've shared with us have really been fun and uh yeah thank you for having me on that's awesome thank you also like to thank my co-hosts nick thanks for uh setting this all up today do i say it's been a pleasure like i do every it's week been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it's been it's been a lot of fun sandra thank you for coming on um it's been a it's been a wonderful wonderful interview and uh, it's uh, some amazing stories and um yeah really appreciate really appreciate you taking the time just uh before the end of the year and uh yeah happy new year even though this episode will come out sometime in january <laughs> thank you for having me on guys and if anybody wants to get into cave diving or rebreather diving, um, been spending a lot of time at Cave Adventures working on instructor licenses. And there's a lot more uh, openings than usual due to COVID. So it's, it's easier to plan dates now than it ever has been. So as the vaccine's coming out and restrictions are starting to lift, um, it's a good time to, to start getting out there and doing different kinds of diving again, finally. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Uh, we have a hard time traveling here in Canada because we have uh, we have some heavy restrictions. But definitely have your contact information in the show notes and all that. And our listeners looking to cave dive, especially if you're already in the U.S., just a short trip to Florida. Yeah, I've been waiting. Tobermory and Ocean Quest, both of those. Mm. I'm looking forward to getting back and yeah, hopefully 2021. Awesome. Fingers crossed. Right now, yeah. Uh, we would love to see some restrictions lift here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also want to thank Amit. Definitely a pleasure to be here. And I thoroughly enjoyed that interview, uh, chatting a little bit about the uh, the Megalodon teeth and some of these cave excursions and next steps in diving. So yeah, thanks very much to Sandra for coming on board and uh, really enjoyed that. Yeah, and April, thanks to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And this was an awesome interview with Sandra. And who knows, maybe when all this COVID is over, we'll all get to dive together, maybe up in Belle Island or something. I like that Belle Island trip Mm -hmm. idea, April. Sounds fantastic. I shall back that. Dive in pod uh, reunion tour, dive in Belle Isle. Well, we'll we'll have our dive in pod guest trip, but also our dive in pod hosts world tour. World tour, yeah. Right. Starting with Bella. And that's also what the uh, Patreon can go towards. So <laughs> well, please, uh, if the Patreon <laughs> really blows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get the you know, $1,000 a month uh, Patreon level for people that want to support yeah. travel. Of, if you uh, of have dive pod extra depo- disposable <laughs> income, please donate it to our Patreon so we can travel the world. Actually, one one thing one thing I was gonna I would like to say though it's um, you know whether whether people are supporting us on Patreon or not uh, I think everybody here has really appreciated all the support all the listeners that we've had and all the guests that we've had and it's uh, yeah be sure to check out the contest because we're you know closing in on a on a year yeah yeah definitely don't forget to check out because we haven't talked about it on this episode except uh, I guess at the beginning so we did talk about it but don't forget go to our Facebook page, go to our Instagram page. We're at dive in pod. Make sure you follow like tag and share the post and you're automatically entered into the drawing for the Peregrine. And we'll do that six times. You can get entered once each time. And then you are entered six times for the Peregrine. You want to get six more uh, entries, send us six separate voice or video recordings of things you like about the podcast. It's all explained on our website, diveinpod.com slash contest. You know what really hurts about this is the fact that these are awesome prizes and none of us can have None any. of us are getting them. I no. Know. Nope. 
so, so much host envy. Yeah, I got to tell you. That's it. I'm going to quit and join. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely going to be a good time for whoever wins this. It's because we love you guys. Yep. All right. Well, if you didn't hear it a second ago, you can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook with at DiveInPod. Our email is divein.thepodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, diveinpod.com. And on the website, you'll find episode details, our reoccurring segments, merch, and much more. On social media, you can follow me at IDiveOK, April's at April Weikert, Nick is at Nicholas Winkler Photography. You can find links for everything we mentioned today's episode in the show notes or on our website, diveinpod.com. And we just wanted to say as well that uh, we couldn't do this contest at all without the support of our friends at Shearwater. So a uh, big shout out to Shearwater, who was uh, very kind in supporting Dive In the podcast as we approached that one year marker. And I mean, aside from the fact that they just make incredible equipment, uh, some of the kit that they sent us here that they're in these prize packs are, are fantastic. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, just another great shout out to Shearwater for being able to support us and helping us through uh, in this time with the podcast. And next week we'll speak to Janelle Williams. She's a researcher in Jamaica doing some really neat stuff there. We'll bring that to you. Uh, right here on the next episode of Dive in the Podcast. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Ray Scuba. Head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for listening.